Welcome to Focus, the productivity podcast about more than just cranking widgets. I'm David Sparks. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mike Schmitz. Hi, Mike. Hey, David. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Uh, today, we have a fun show planned. We've got a guest with us today. Welcome to the Focus podcast, Tiago Forte. Great to be here. Tiago is just getting ready or has just recently released a new book called Building a Second Brain. Uh, listeners of the show may be familiar with Tiago's courses and materials on building a second brain. And uh, congratulations on getting your book out. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long journey, but uh, we're finally we're finally at the finish line. You know, I have friends that have written books, and it does seem like there's a long gap between the time you finish and the time that the book actually gets published. It's it's especially for those of us, those of us that work online. You know, yeah. there's a lot of time online where we're used to these very fast timelines, very fast feedback loops. Yeah, it's an, it is such. It was probably a three and a half year project from start to finish. So yeah, I had to I had to have some patience. <laughs> well, we are uh, we are fans of what you do. I mean, the idea behind the Focus Podcast is that it's so difficult to stay focused anymore. You know, technology, which promised us a lot in a lot of ways, has become our enemy, and one element of that is just the mere amount of content that we're all provided these days. And, you know, when I think back to earlier in my life before the internet was really a thing, it's just shocking to me how much more content that is thrown at me. A lot of it that I willingly want uh, these days than when I was growing up. And I think for a lot of us, we feel overwhelmed because there's just so much that all we can do is receive and not act on anything. And it feels to me like, this is one of the things you're aiming at with this whole idea of building a second brain. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like that you highlight that it's, it's a problem of abundance. You know, the reason the information is so overwhelming is that it's good. Not that it's bad. As much yeah. of it is, is just the, the, the free content we have access to is just unbelievably high quality. A lot of it, it's, it's thoughtful, it's helpful, it's, you know, useful. And that, and, and that is exactly the problem is that we can't get ourselves to turn away. (laughs) It's like a Homer Simpson in hell where he just starts getting fed donuts and he's very happy. You know, the donuts (laughs) just keep coming, but he's not doing anything with the donuts. And I feel like for technology and, and the, uh, the, the content being thrown at us, uh, I really hope that people can find a way to find peace with it, to find some way to work with it, to make their lives better. And uh, me too. Yeah, me too. That's I'm I'm with you. Well, with that context, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Yeah, let's see. How far should we go back? <laughs> <laughs> let's start with uh, in the book. You have a pretty fascinating story. You can tell the short version of kind of just what highlighted the need for building a second brain in the first place for you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's a good place to start. Uh, It really started with an unexplained chronic illness. You know, I was 21, 22 years old. The world was my oyster, had all these plans for the future, all these things I wanted to do and learn and achieve. And suddenly, uh, while I was working at the Apple store, actually in San Diego, I remember the exact moment, the day, uh, it was a sunny day in La Jolla. I started having this unexplained first, like just a little tickle, which eventually became some tension, which eventually became pain in the right side of my throat, the right side of my neck. And, you know, the way the U S medical system is designed, you are the project manager of your, of your health. 
right? You get shuttled back and forth between all sorts of hospitals and providers and specialists, and they all send you forms. And sometimes you have to, you know, fill out those forms or challenge those forms or submit claims. It really is a staggering information load. And I just wasn't prepared for that at all. I wasn't, I had no system, you know, I took notes in school, but that was for a test or to pass an essay. Suddenly I now had to track tons of information in paper form, which I had to learn how to convert to digital form from dozens of different sources for a super long-term, you know, effort over years uh, without any clear milestone. There was no deadline. There was no test. I wish there was, but it was like, you make of this what you will. It's all up to you. You're, you're in the driver's seat. And so that was really the origin of my need to organize information digitally. I love that because uh, not that you had to go through the, the health stuff, but building a second brain for, any, for most of the focused audience, they've probably heard that term before and they've probably seen what you've created uh, in some way, shape or form over the last several years. But uh, I love the, the most, the books that I get the most out of are the ones that have arisen from solving a need that the person who wrote them was experiencing. And it just happens to apply to my situation as well. And I, I love that this whole idea arose as a way to solve this thing. I mean, I can only put myself in, in your shoes at this point, but wondering what is causing this thing and thinking, am I going to have to deal with this the rest of my life? There is definitely motivation to try to figure this out. This isn't a nice to have at, at this point. Exactly. I, I don't know if I would have really gotten into the stuff if I didn't have that need. But then what happened over time is the system that I created, I started to realize was general purpose. It wasn't a you know patient record system. It wasn't a doctor's appointment note-taking system. It was just an organizational system for really any kind of information. Uh, and so the, the scope started to expand. <laughs> I thought, well, why don't I use this same approach to school and started for the first time in my life getting great grades you know, graduated with honors from, from college, which was not going to happen anyway. Uh, and then I thought, oh, well, let's, let's keep going. Uh, I used it to apply to the Peace Corps and go and serve for two years in Ukraine as a Peace Corps volunteer where I was an English teacher. So I basically used it for my, you know, my first, my first job. Uh, and then it just kept going. Let me come back to the U.S. and use it to get my first professional job. Then let me use it to start a blog. Let me use it to create content. Let me use it to start a business. And that's really led me all the way to today where I feel like I kind of have this secret. I seem to have just this thing that can be applied to almost any problem that just helps you use information in a powerful way, crucially without relying. This was the lesson I learned and I feel fortunate to have learned it so early. I learned early on that I cannot rely on my biological capabilities for my quality of life. I cannot rely on my brain to remember, keep track of, and surface what I need. Um, I just didn't have that option because of my, my condition. Um, so it's sort of like once you stop relying on your body, your physical body, the sky's the limit. It's like having you know first a prosthetic, but then you get the prosthetic and you turn it up to 11 power. And suddenly your prosthetic is a, it's like a cognitive exoskeleton that amplifies you. Well, it's like the uh, human brain is a great CPU, but it's poor RAM. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, you know, we had Annie Murphy Paul on a few months ago. Oh, and nice. I feel like her show really ties with this one because you're right. Um, I think one of the ways we deal with that problem at the start of the show of too much is 
is accept that we can't keep it all in our brains and that we do need a way, a system to track this information without having to store it all, you know, between our two ears. Yeah. It's a, it's a crucial realization. Part of the idea behind that is the uh, idea of the commonplace book that you mentioned. Do you mind just unpacking that uh, idea a little bit and how that can benefit people in whatever situation? Absolutely. The commonplace book was really one of my biggest inspirations. Um, I'm a huge fan of history. I read a lot of history. Uh, and in fact, the book, you'd think it would be full of, you know, futuristic predictions about second brain and AI and, you know, cognitive extension. Actually, there's a lot more history. There's more history than futurism, because if you look to the past, we've been in this place, in this moment, many times before, which is the moment where the world is changing. Technology is transforming society. It's transforming the economy, transforming how we live. And suddenly we have a, an incredible, you know, tidal wave of new information and complex information, uncertain information, information that requires us to do something and to change and to make sense of. And so I really went back to the 17th, 18th centuries, primarily when at that time it was just the super educated class, which was like this one little layer of society, right? The people who went to universities, who wrote treatises and treaties and had theories and gave speeches and were leaders. They had this thing called a commonplace book in Europe. And it was just a way and a place to make sense of information. They would, you know, write in passages. They would uh, copy, you know, Bible verses or recipes for food or, um, you know, or magical spells or, um, you know, scientific observations or things they'd collected, leaves, uh, drawings, sketches. And that was the one place that they could decide what it meant. All the other sources of information is like received authority, the church, the state, tells you this is what it means. But the commonplace book was one of the first times uh, where the enlightenment really gave us permission to say, no, you're allowed to interpret what things mean for yourself. And the practical medium of that was these, these essentially notebooks that people kept. And we find ourselves in another period of technological change and in need for a digital commonplace book, for lack of a better term. Exactly. What I love about that is that it's a lot more accessible now. Uh, That was the time when information was scarce. Now information is abundant. So the need that they had was to collect the things that are important. That's still the same today, but literally anybody can apply this. Exactly. That's what's really changed since, you know, last time (laughs) is what is the educated class now? Everyone to varying degrees, right? Who are the creators and the creatives now, practically everyone, you know, when I first started uh, working on this stuff, I thought this might be for, you know, software engineers in Silicon Valley, or maybe, you know, designer, high-end designers in New York city. But I've been surprised repeatedly how many people are struggling with information overload. You know, I've, I've spoken to truck drivers, truck drivers, you wouldn't believe how much information truck drivers have to keep track of. Right. They, they are knowledge workers. I think I've talked to, you know, my brother's a contractor, like a construction in construction. He has, I think, more challenging demands 
You know, if I get something wrong, I just re-update the document. If he gets something wrong, they've just drilled through a concrete wall, right? <laughs> and so I've come to the conclusion, I think virtually everyone in society needs something like this in some form. I agree. Everybody needs it. I'm not sure everybody is looking for it. And yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing I find with our, you know, interacting with our audience is that most of the people, no matter what, where they are in life, they could be retired or students or any, any profession in between the commonality is curiosity. People who are seeing all this stuff and do want to make sense of it. And if that's all you need, if you bring curiosity to the game, tools like this can really up your game really make it easier. Absolutely. One of the things that you talk about in your book is, and this is later on, but uh, I think it's relevant for the discussion we're having right now about how productivity and creativity are related. And you just used a phrase where this can help you create, essentially, that there's an output associated with all this information that you're collecting. And this is one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is the because I've fallen into this myself, this belief that people have, limiting belief, that I'm just not creative because I don't draw or paint or host a podcast or have a blog, whatever. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because I think uh, you would probably say that everybody is creative in some way, and really it's just the fact that you have to have this output that helps you kind of codify all this stuff and what it means in your head. I completely agree. It drives me, drives me crazy. That distinction, which I think goes deep in our society. You know, I remember in school that we were divided on upon like along tracks quite early on, you were sort of labeled, you were designated as someone who was good at math. Right. And I think the year that happened, maybe like sixth, seventh grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I, I skipped around to different schools. And so I didn't have that continuity. And I, I think I, I kind of have a, you know, a mathematical mind, an analytical mind, but because I, I just didn't get on that track for the rest of my academic career, I was sort of, you know, not, um, I wasn't advised to really invest in those kind of classes. And then even in the, in, in the workplace, when I worked at the Apple store, right, you have the Mac uh, at the time they were called the creatives and they always, you know, were filmmakers and audio people and drawing and all these things. And then you had the Mac geniuses who are the technical people who fixed the computers and there was no crossover. Right. <laughs> and I think the, the opposite view I really learned from my father. My father is an incredibly prolific artist. He always has been an artist since he was a little kid. Uh, he's, he's created thousands of paintings. You know, a painter is like the classic, the quintessential artist. And people would come over and be like, wow, his imagination is so good. And these are all, these are so fanciful. They're so imaginative. But behind the scenes, what I saw was someone very dedicated to productivity. I mean, my dad is one of the most disciplined, principle oriented, consistent people I know. You know, he had his schedule, he had his routines, he had what he called his systems. He was constantly taking in notes, constantly drawing in outside sources of inspiration. It was incredibly systematic. And those two things weren't opposed. They weren't intention. They were completely complementary. What allowed him to be efficient is what is also what allowed him to be imaginative. So I'm trying to bring that philosophy to the the knowledge worker world. (laughs) Art is hard work, you know. I want to talk about this idea of content consumption versus creation for a minute, because I do feel like there's a lot of people out there who are excited and curious and 
collecting a lot and you know the world now makes it so easy you know web you know web clipping services and like i know you're a big fan of evernote and there's all these different tools out there that make it easy to create these war chests full of information but i also think there is a line to be crossed there between collecting it and acting upon it mm-hmm. and i think as i understand it that's what really building a second brain is about is finding is crossing that rubicon and um yes. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about how people can start making progress from uh, consumer to creator. Yeah, that's, that's such a great observation. I don't know if I put it in this explicit of terms, but it's, it's absolutely the case is in the, I think what it is is in the past consumption and creating were extremely different. They were completely different worlds and there was very little overlap, right? Yeah. You were a consumer of text and writing, or you were a producer of text. You were a- you, you watched Gilligan's Island, or you wrote papers. You know there was exactly. no inter- nothing in the middle. Exactly, you couldn't be like, "Oh, I like this." You know, Gilligan's Island, great. Let me just step into this onto the set and be an actor in this show. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we're getting closer and closer where to where those worlds are are merging. You know, now you can start, you know, watch a TV show, you like it, you start a podcast on, on the TV show and starting a podcast is as simple as downloading anchor, you know, hitting record on your phone. And now you have a podcast. So it's like the, the two worlds that were now in opposite dimensions are now kind of merging and people have not realized this. They really have not woken up to this fact. Um, and I'm just encouraging them. It's just a little step, something like reading a book to summarizing the book, right? For me, that was one of the earliest moments where I realized, wait a minute, I read this book. I recommended it to people. Of course, no one that I recommended it to read it. Who has the time to read a book? (laughs) And so I realized at some point, if I want the ideas in this book to be shared with the people I care about, I need to put in some effort. I need to synthesize it, curate it, turn it into a more succinct form. And so book summaries have been, were one of the kind of my first, uh, the first moments where I saw, wow, I can be a creator too. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute, because I think that's super important. There's so much, you know, the, the information we do consume, uh, merely reading it is not enough. You need to engage with it. And you've got a whole workflow about how you do that. Absolutely. That, that's true. It's about learning it, too. Yeah. Right. It's, people get caught up in, oh, but I'm not a creator. I'm not an influencer, a blogger, a thought leader. But forget all that for a sec. You know, maybe one day you'll, you'll make some money. This will be a cool side gig or a business. Just do it for selfish reasons. Do it for your own learning, for your own purposes. Start there, you know, get your hands dirty with the ideas and see, you know, in the future, it may lead somewhere else, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. And I guess when I say creator, maybe I'm using too narrow of a term because really what you're talking about is getting your own head straight about how this material impacts you and how it can make changes for you. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily putting it on a podcast or a blog, but just figuring it out what it means for you because reading a book, I, I just finished reading your book. It's very good. I've got a bunch of highlights. Now it's time for me to go through and process highlights and get my takeaways and my action items out of your book. And the, um, and I think it's that extra work, which honestly doesn't take that long, mm-hmm. but it's where all the payoff comes. And I know you cover that quite extensively in your course too. Totally. So th- that is such a great point is reading the book or consuming the source is the hard part. Yeah. Right. If you, if you read it, I don't think people understand this. If you read a book these days, you're part of like an intellectual elite 
you know, you have somehow, you know, carved out focus, maybe using some of the strategies you guys talk about here um, to, you know, spend five to 10 hours it takes for, you know, an average book of dedicated focus reading time. That is an accomplishment. That is hard. Once you put in that much time and, and energy, the effort to summarize or distill or just save those highlights is like an extra one to 5%. It's just like a little, it's like you made the money. Now just get the money and deposit it into your checking account. (laughs) It's like marching the football down to the five yard line and then leaving the field. Exactly. (laughs) Not that much harder. Well, I definitely like reading books. So you guys are speaking my language. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got a, a whole podcast called bookworm where we read a different book every couple of weeks. And, uh, that's one of the things that I've learned through reading 144 of them now for that, that podcast is, uh, I don't need to completely understand and apply everything that comes from every book that I read. Mm-hmm. Reading a bunch of them has given me permission to decide for myself what is relevant for my situation and what I'm going to take and apply. And I would almost caution people, like if you go into a productivity book specifically and you just try to apply everything that the author is is talking about just exactly as they describe it, it's almost always never going to work for you. You have to figure out how to synthesize this into uh, into a way that makes sense for the way that that you work and the way that your your brain works, which really is getting into the building a second brain stuff because one of the books we, we read was how to read a book by Mortimer Adler. He mm-hmm. talks about syntopical reading, right? So I've read this book and I understand the arguments the author is making, but I have to consider these arguments in context of all of the other books that I've read. Yeah. So it's not just this single book and it's either going to change my life or not. And if it doesn't, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's what's the good stuff in here, spit out the sticks. And then how does it connect to everything else that is bouncing around in, inside of my brain? I feel like building a second brain is kind of uniquely positioned to, to do just that, not just with books, but with all the other information that, that you determine is, is valuable. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. The end of the book is just the beginning of the process of sense making, connect making, you know, connection making, uh, relating, contextualizing. And I think often people just don't even go there. They don't even, you know, reading, finishing the book is okay. You know, let me wipe my hands and, and on to the next thing. But I think the value really comes when you do those, those subsequent steps. This episode of the focus podcast is brought to you by indeed. Get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post. For your company's next hire, you know you want them to have great problem-solving skills and think like an entrepreneur. The thing you need to help with, how to find them. Easy. You need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data U.S., 
One of the things that's really cool about Indeed is how they know how to make hiring pain-free. Like how Indeed saves you headaches by letting you interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases. You can do it all in one place with Indeed. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit toward your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 in extra sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash focused to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash focused. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot com slash focused. Terms and conditions do apply. Do you need to hire? You need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for the support of the Focus Podcast and all of Relay FM. So let's talk about those steps. And you can go into as much detail as you, you want here. I'm, I'm kind of uh, assuming that you are okay talking through high level, at least some of the, the stuff that's in building a second brain. I'd love Absolutely. for you to just kind of walk people through code and then we can dig into some specific ideas there because... I have thoughts <laughs> on some of this stuff. I really like some of the the framing and positioning you use for this, but what is the process that people follow when they engage with building a second brain? Yeah, let's do it. So I think the first thing to know is a second brain is not just a thing. It's not just a place. It is a workflow. It is a process. It's a creative process, right? And this goes back to our discussion of, well, everyone is creative. I truly believe everyone has some element of creativity. And so the creative process is now something not just for, you know, uh, artists and poets and, and people like that, but for all of us. So I developed this framework called Code, which is the main chapters of the book, C-O-D-E, um, which describe what that workflow is and what, what is entailed in each step. Uh, the four letters stand for capture, organize, distill, express. And it's essentially describing inputs on one end, right? You capture inputs, you document them, you write them down in some external medium outside your head. Then the next stage is you organize them, right? You have to put them into some order, some structure. Then once they're in a structure, you want to distill. This is the one most people miss. You have to boil them down to their their essence. You have to refine them into building blocks that you can use. And then finally, express, which is really a synonym for implementing, applying, using, sharing, publishing, shipping, like whatever that looks like for your work. Knowledge is meant to be shared. It's meant to be used, I think. So I really have adopted this process and teach this process where everything you learn, think about how it could make it all the way through your system and eventually out into the world where it can, you know, make some positive difference for the world or for others. Uh, so we can get into each of those, but the, the overall workflow is code. Love it. And the ultimate output is you're creating something. There is an, an output from all this information that you've collected, which as we talked about, in the previous segment, that's kind of the the thing that a lot of people miss. Without the output, you're you're missing out on the value of the information. Absolutely, and it kind of harkens back uh, to that quote. You know, begin with the end in mind. Mm. 
begin with the end in mind. This is really one of my top recommendations is sometimes people start at the, at the beginning of code and they try to capture everything perfectly. And then once they've perfected that, which often never happens, then they say, I'm going to move on to organize. Once I've perfected that, I'm going to move on to distill. Don't do it that way. That's, that's trying to boil the ocean. Right. <laughs> Each one of those steps is an infinity trap if you're not careful. It is. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Capture specifically, though, I, I want to dig into this one because um, when you were talking about limiting the things that you are going to capture, I felt that I had found my knowledge soulmate. Like <laughs> this is something uh, I have been I've been preaching for a long time, but you uh, you explained it a lot better than I ever did. But I, I feel like the uh, the term you use is curation. You are deciding for yourself which which pieces of this information are not just good, but are the best ones to be plugged into this second brain system. And that means that a lot of good information is probably not going to make the cut. And that's okay. That's it. I mean, this is really, if I could save people years of, of pain, <laughs> because I've, it took me years to learn this lesson that in order to have the great ideas shine, you need to cut the good ones. Another way of saying that is ideas are dilutive, mm. right? It's not that each idea that you or notes that you throw onto the giant pile of existing notes adds value. It often it often reduces the value. It's like dilution. You know, it's like you have a nice drink and you're adding water or ice cubes, right? It's getting more and more diluted. The value, the, the signal and the noise is becoming less concentrated. Whereas what you actually want is to have the signal and the noise become more concentrated, which often means taking things out. To torture the analogy for me, it's more like when you were a kid and you went up to the soda fountain and you put Coke and Sprite and <laughs> <laughs> and it, it not only just diluted it, it just made everything taste bad. Oh, yeah. The, um, tell me, how do you, because I think this is one of the points where a lot of people listening to the show are going to struggle with. I know I do as well. Cat, it's so tempting because the availability of information to say like, oh, I want to do something like that. The, recently, I was researching interstitial journaling for something I was writing and uh, it was so tempting for me to spend like two days finding anything ever written or published on this subject. And like, how do you stop, you know, where have you faced that in your life and, and how do you, you know, give some tips to people so they know, you know, give them some way to govern themselves with this. Yeah, it's a great point. It's hard to know, you know, it's just, this is why this is a skill. It is a capability yeah. you have to develop. There's not one single rule of thumb. Uh, I do give different rules of thumb that are useful for different kinds of people. For example, you know, is this useful? That is a really good filter is not just if it's interesting, the interesting filter is too broad, right? Especially if you're someone who's curious, you have many interests, you like to learn. If you capture what is interesting, you're just going to have a, you're just going to have be inundated with stuff. Yeah. I think it's powerful to make a switch and think about information in terms of its utility. Like, what is the usefulness of this? Specifically, how am I going to use it to solve a problem? How am I going to use it to build something new? How am I going to use it to make a connection? Like some, some practical outcome for that. How can it serve me? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, that's one. Uh, another one is if it's personal. You know, I think we have to always keep in mind that there's this thing called Google. <laughs> so anything that Google is good at finding, which tend to be kind of straightforward facts, you don't really need to save, right? You know, what is the population of Paris? Okay, maybe that could be useful. I don't know if you're, a, maybe you're a demographer or something, but any minute of the day on any device, you can find that information instantaneously on Google. Uh, whereas your photos of your trip to Paris and the museum you visited, right, whose collection is, isn't online and you had to be there in person, now that you should say, because no one else in the world has access to that specific content. One of the terms you use uh, as you're talking about what to capture is this term resonance, which mm-hmm. I myself have used frequently, but I've never stopped to really define it for people. And I feel like this is a really powerful idea because uh, you shared some great clarifying questions on whether this should end up in your, your second brain or not. But sometimes it doesn't meet the criteria and you just have this gut feeling that this is going to be important later. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is something that you should capture so you don't miss out on it. Do you mind just explaining what you mean by that term resonance and maybe give some examples uh, from your, your own experience? Yeah, it's such a good point is the people who tend to, to do this kind of stuff, you know, build systems of knowledge management. There's a, there's a type, right? Um, they're, we are nerdy. We love to learn. We are detail oriented. Often we are, um, we're, we're nerds. We're big nerds. And so often I think we want this checklist. We want to follow a rigorous, super analytical, logical checklist for what to, at all stages, for what to capture, for what to organize, for what to distill, for what to express, which is wonderful. I love that. I love that, that nerdiness. But the thing is, there's limits to it. You know, the problem with analytical, logical thinking is that it's taxing. It's, tax, it's taxing. It takes up a lot of energy. So when it comes to capturing, capturing is the first, is only the first step, right? It's only getting on the train. You cannot afford to exhaust yourself, you know, on the very first leg of your journey so that you never even make it to the end. And so one of the best ways of preserving energy is by making decisions about what to capture, not based on logic, but based on essentially intuition, you know, emotion, uh, resonance. I remember growing up and my, my father would have his artist friends over and they were academics, they were professors, that whole type. And they would often say, oh, that really resonates with me. You know, someone would talk about a show, you know, one of their drawings or paintings or talk about an idea they read and someone would go, oh, that really resonates. And as a kid, I would overhear this and be like, what, is, what does that mean? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. But now I understand that what they're saying is like, it's, it's kind of like, I like that but it's more than just liking something, right? It's like, it's like feeling almost like an echo. Resonance has this feeling of an echo, right? There's an echo in your soul. There's an echo in your mind, in your heart, or actually in your body. Part of this is getting in touch with your own physical, the physical sensations in your body that happen when you encounter an idea that is interesting. There's actually things that go on. You may not even understand why, but there is a, a subconscious intuition that will tell you that is interesting, valuable, 
rare, beautiful, true, good, important, you know, these kind of criteria that would be very hard to decide on analytically. Yeah, you know, we take it for granted, but it's a beautiful word, you know, when you think about it. Resonance is like, you know, the vibrations of you, the emotional vibration. I don't know. I Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. When I hear that term resonance, kind of what I think of is yeah, this causes something to go off inside of me. And that's proof that this idea is worth capturing. It's in alignment with who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that you talk about in this whole section about capturing is uh, just what is this going to become? You use the term knowledge assets. And I feel like that's really powerful. If you understand that this is being captured, not because it might be important and you don't want to miss out on something, that scarcity mindset but this is going to be useful for me in producing something else. This is the Lego piece that I was looking for <laughs> that kind of changes your interaction, your relationship with the information that's around you that you could potentially capture. It really does. It really does. Yeah, I love that financial analogy. We know about compounding, you know, the 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 law of compounding, the magic of compounding. I think something similar happens with ideas, happens with knowledge that it builds on each other. It's become something more than the sum of its parts, but we have to, you know, money, we have systems for, we know, okay, if I get a check, we know exactly what to do with it, you know, deposit it in the checking account. But when it comes to knowledge, it's less clear. We, we almost have to invent the knowledge infrastructure, the same way that we have financial infrastructure. What are the accounts? What are the checks? How do you check your balance? How do you pay for things? What are the credit cards? Like what are the ways by which we, you know, by which we capitalize on the value of our, our ideas. And if capture isn't enough to, to thwart our nerdy brains, the next one is organized, which <laughs> for us geeks is like, that is like, uh, you know, that's red meat for us. You know? oh, yeah. oh, wait, I can build a system <laughs> and organize it, sign me up. And that, I feel like that's another, another place that's easy to get captured. How do you, how do you get, how do you organize and how do you not get lost in organization? It's so true. Organizing, it's like a big tar pit. You know, the smarter you are, the more you can, you know, you can go down that rabbit trail. So th- this is actually a, uh, a technique that I teach that is the most popular thing uh, on my blog. Most popular kind of framework that I've created, which is called Para, P-A-R-A. And it is a radical simplification of organizing in that all information, I mean, all information from any source in any format for any purpose can be placed into one of just four categories, which sounds absurd, right? You know, as I was researching recently, uh, Aristotle back, you know, 2,500 years ago was trying to come up with the, uh, the universal categories, like a universal taxonomy for, for everything. And he had like 12 categories. So if Aristotle couldn't get it down further than 12, what makes us think we can get it down to four? (laughs) Um, But the key here, and this is a really big breakthrough for a lot of people, is the key to being able to do that is organizing information not by what it means or what topic it relates to or what subject. Because as soon as you do that, you start having topics and then subtopics and then sub-subtopics. You start to recreate the Dewey Decimal System, right, which has potentially hundreds of categories. But remember, we're talking about personal knowledge management. 
We're not creating a library. We're not creating a research database. We're not a university. All we're doing is organizing information for one person. And that person is us. And so there's a different principle of organization we can use, which is what's actionable. And what's actionable is the projects you're working on. That's what's most actionable. That's the P in para. Then there's your areas of responsibility. That's still actionable, but a, you know, a little bit less, a little more long-term. Then there's resources, which is everything else, all the other things you're interested in, things you're curious about, things you're learning. And then there's the archives, the last A in para, which is everything from the previous three categories that is, you know, on, that is in cold storage, that is on pause. Uh, and that way, the, 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 the reason for all this is most of your attention goes to the top of that pyramid. Think of it like a big pyramid with projects at the top. Most of your attention should be on your project, should be on what's active and happening right now. And that's what Para facilitates. It's a hierarchy, which I, I like because it shines a light on what you should be thinking about right now. Uh, that's I, in the book you mentioned the uh, mindfulness meditation practice that helped you at the the end. And we've talked a lot about that on, on this podcast. That's one of the things that I tend to struggle with. So I recognize the, uh, the importance of staying in the moment and not freaking out about things that are coming later that you can really do nothing about right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, it. It's, it's almost like an external mindfulness tool. <laughs> well, I mean, and the interesting thing about this is if you look at uh, Aristotle's categorization, it was, you know, animal, vegetable, mineral. It was a historical or traditional categorization you have done with para what I would call a contextual categorization. Mm-hmm. You're not organizing information by it, the subject by, but in relation to the context that I, the user am in relation to it, which is, it's really nice to take your brain out of what you would historically consider, you know, of how you would organize information and look at it in terms of your own personal context. And I felt like that's one of the big takeaways from the book is what are my personal contexts and how do I make sure information is organized to serve me in that way rather than a historical Dewey decimal system or something else. And I, I thought that was really smart. Totally. That, that idea of context, really, I learned from David Allen, right? David Allen with GTD had this idea that you should choose what to work on based on context. The difference is, you know, his contexts were when you're at your computer, when you have your phone, when you're out and about, now with knowledge work and specifically yeah. remote work, digital work, all of those contexts have collapsed. Yeah. Now, if I have my phone, I can do virtually any task. Right? <laughs> and so the contexts have shifted from like physical locations to states of mind, which is really what I think of as the categories of para. When you're in a project mindset, you know, you're focused, narrowed in, this is deep work. This is like, you're really going to make progress. Areas are more like running a marathon right? Your finances, your health, it's more about the consistency, the ongoing resources is like learning when you're in a learning state of mind and archives is like down in the basement, you know, in the garage, never have to see it again, unless you really want to. (laughs) But with digital tools, you do have an archive. So why not? This episode of Focused is brought to you by Timing, the intelligent time tracking app that you can trust. Whether you're billing by the hour, employed, or billing per project, you might need to estimate how long a task is going to take. Or maybe you just want a better understanding of where your time is actually going so you can make some positive changes in your life. 
Time tracking can help you stay on track with those estimates to make sure that you don't end up in the road with your projects and make more accurate estimates in the future. But in today's work environment, work changes so quickly, you really can't start and stop a timer for everything. The good news is your computer already knows what you do, so why not have it track your time for you? Timing automatically tracks everything that you do on your Mac without you having to lift a finger. You can trust it to always give you the complete picture. Timing will detect when you're in a video call, and it lets you record what that meeting was about afterwards. There's even more magic like this in timing to make recording your time as easy as possible. Plus, you can enjoy the activities screen, which presents your app usage, including websites, file paths, and window titles. And if you want to, you can start and stop timers from within the main timing app. And if you're collaborating with colleagues, timing's Teams feature lets you share projects with them and record everyone's time in a central location, which lets managers get a quick overview of where their team members spend their time while preserving their privacy. Because which apps, documents, and websites each team member used stays private. Nothing is visible to the managers. Plus, with a super slick onboarding process, everyone will be up to speed in no time. I've used Timing for years. It's the app that made time tracking actually stick for me in the first place. And one of the things that I really like about it is the ability to make these rules based on the websites that you visit or even the documents that you're working on. You can say, when I am in this document or on this website, this is productive time versus this website maybe is unproductive time. So it's not even just an app level. You can get even more granular with that. And once you make those rules, then timing can automatically classify those things for you in the future. And then it can take all of that and give you a productivity score, which I actually used to learn that I was not as productive as I thought I was. And then from there, I can set more accurate estimates so that I can make the most of my time, attention, and energy as I am creating and doing things online. It's really easy to use, really easy to set up. And if you want to take control of how you spend your time and improve your productivity, then download the free 14-day trial today by going to timingapp.com slash focused, F-O-C-U-S-E-D and you'll save 10% when you subscribe. Plus, it lets Timing know that you heard about them from us, which helps the show. So that's timingapp.com slash focused to try Timing for free and save 10% when you subscribe. Our thanks to Timing for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. The next step in the process is, is um, the distill, you know, and we talked a little bit earlier about progressive summarization, but I feel like, that is another really good thing you have to share with the world. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yes. Distill. Um, so distill is a broad concept. There's many ways of distilling information, right? When you talk about an idea, you automatically distill it, right? You sort of turn it into language, which is kind of compresses those ideas in a, in a communicable form. Um, but of the many different ways of, of distilling information, the one I find most relevant to digital note-taking in particular is, is, is yeah, progressive summarization, um, which really comes from, you know, where this comes from is my time in Silicon Valley. Um, I spent about seven, eight years there working for various companies, consulting for various companies, and I was exposed to UX design, UX design in the field. And what you quickly learn in UX design is that human beings are extraordinarily sensitive to the way that information is presented. Surprisingly so. You would think, oh, it's just information. We're just going to absorb it. No. The smallest differences in size, shape, color, the spacing of text, the typeface, you know, the, 
the the hue of the color, the brightness of the screen can have a double digit percentage impact on whether people will pay attention to it, how much attention. It, I mean, you guys, I'm preaching to the choir here, right? Like you guys know, like th- this stuff matters. Yeah, we're genetically a lot closer to monkeys than we are computers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So really, I'm, I've just gotten that insight um, and applied it to notes. I think people really don't appreciate this about notes. You know, we know uh, the changing the headline on a web page can have a 10, 20% impact on how many people stay on the web page. We know this. But then we go to our notes, and most of the time they're ugly. There's no thought put into the UX of our notes, there's no thought put into the readability the glance ability, our ability to quickly scan a page and find what's relevant. I don't know why that is exactly, but there's very few note-taking apps that have any kind of UX thinking put into them. Yeah, it does seem like an afterthought. And it's interesting because I do agree with you that a lot of technically-minded people are going to really adopt the stuff you're talking about. And But as a breed, us technically-minded people often look for notes apps that have features over UI. I mean, yes. we just, we, we want all the bells and whistles, you know, I mean, Mike and I are both users of obsidian, which is pretty ugly. And, <laughs> you know, and there there's apps out there that have less power that look prettier. And, you know, you, you wonder sometimes if you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, absolutely. It's this field has been so um, it's been so dominated by engineers which is fine. Those have been, you know, the early adopters, Yeah. but there's a legacy there. This is why I bring in art so much. We need art and science. We need the full spectrum of human styles of thinking. If we're going to create, you know, a good second brain. Yeah. The progressive summarization that you talk about that, I think was the first idea I became aware of by you. I know you mentioned Para is the, or or Para is the one that is most popular on your blog, but this is the one that introduced me to Tiago Forte. And I think this is pretty brilliant. Uh, and I like how you have applied this to plain text notes apps. Uh, an example of of this sort of thing that I do with my book notes, I, I read physical books and I take notes in my note on my iPhone and I've developed over the years a whole emoji system. So if this is a quote, it gets a quote bubble. Mm-hmm. If it's a, an inspiring idea it gets a little light bulb if it's a key idea like there's an argument the author's making it'll get a little key icon and that has been helpful as i look at those mind maps and i review basically what it what was this book about and then i synthesize it down which is this whole distillation process that you're talking about but you don't have to have a mind mapping app or an emoji key in order to do this you can use the features that are built into literally any notes app yeah. you could possibly use that's it that's it i I've been burned so many times um, trying to push the technological frontier. You know, I've, I've tried many times trying to to use because there's there's so many sophisticated you know software programs out there. And after kind of making that mistake so many times, I'm just in the mindset that I only want to use technology that is like 10 years old. Once it hits 10 years old, I'm, I start to become interested because that means it's totally stable. There's no surprises. It's widely supported. It's found its way into many contexts. And in this example, that means simple formatting, bolding, highlighting, underlining, italics, yeah. right? Which you can do, you mentioned note-taking apps, but even beyond, you know, Microsoft Word, Google Docs. I use progressive summarization in the in, key, in Apple Keynote for my speaker's notes. 
right? Because I want the full text of what I want to say when I'm giving a presentation. But if I also need to just glance and get just the main point, I want that thing highlighted. So it's it's really universal and even extends beyond digital. I mean, highlighting, highlighting. And we all know what highlighting is. That's what we did in school. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you mind real briefly just kind of walking through, we've been talking about progressive summarization, summarization and kind of gen- generically what it, what it is and what it does, but I mean, just real briefly talking about like the different layers and how this could be useful. Yes, <clears throat> of course. Uh, it's really getting the same approach to highlighting, which is highlight the important parts, which you learn in school. But instead of treating those highlights as essentially disposable, right, for the test, for the essay, for this class, for my university degree, and then never looking at them again, you think of your highlights for anything, for a book you're reading, a website you're reviewing, an article you're reading, even a tweet storm you're reading as those knowledge assets. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but when I make a highlight, what I'm thinking is, do I, it's like I'm creating a time capsule. Do I want to put this sentence into a time capsule that any version of my future self can access? Which, by the way, makes you more more picky, more selective, which is the main change that a lot of people need to make is to be way more selective in what they highlight. But then with digital, so with paper, you can only highlight once, right? There's only two states, highlighted or not highlighted. With digital, we can go beyond that because you want a little more, you want a few more options than just this is important or this is not important right? You want kind of, it's almost like a spectrum. You actually want not important, important, very important, extremely important, and absolutely crucial. You want to be able to have different stages where you can designate whether an idea is just slightly interesting or absolutely life-changing. And so what we do is we just think of the highlights in different layers. So the layer, the, the text, let's say that you initially capture in your digital notes is layer one. That's like the ground floor. That's like the original text. Then you add bolding. You bold the most important parts. That's layer two. Then from within the bold parts, so you're not having to go back to the original text. You're only looking at a small number of bolded parts. You highlight using the actual you know, yellow formatting that most notes apps offer, uh, truly the, the, the most important parts. And you should limit yourself to a handful of points per source. Right. So a long article you read might only have two, three, four, five highlighted points. And the reason that's so important, going back to UX, is in the midst of the insanity of your workday, when you might have 10 or 20 seconds to, you know, find the information you need, you need to be able to open that note. Your eye needs to be able to jump straight to just a few of those main points. And then in that moment, be able to decide this is relevant to my current needs and I'm going to use it or it's not, and I'm going to move on. That's the key. I love this idea so much. <laughs> to me, it seems like you've got whatever portion you've captured of whatever book or article you were, you were reading, that's the 80-20. And then mm-hmm. when you select the, the important part from that and you bold it, that's the 80-20 of the 80-20. You just keep drilling yes. down. And what you end up with is whatever is in this category at the bottom this is really, really, really great stuff. Yeah. And then from there, you can just reference that stuff and get the majority of the, the value from it when you're trying to communicate it or teach it, which kind of gets into the last part, obviously, the, the express, the, the output. Right? Yeah. You don't understand something until you can explain it to a, a nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah. right? So that's kind of what this progressive summarization allows you to do. 
That's right. It's it's a very it's a very simple kind of embarrassingly you know mundane thing to do. It, it's not that impressive, right? You're not going to win any you know technology innovation awards, and yet it's never failed me. You know, I never go to use the highlighter highlighter feature, and there's a you know there's an error, or I don't know, there's a software update needed. It's just it's as reliable or even more so than the highlighter on my desk. Yeah, I, I spent 30 years as a lawyer and a significant portion of that as a as a litigator. And I went to a seminar once with Jerry Spence, mm-hmm. who's a famous, famous attorney. And the thing he said that stood out to me the most, he said, if you can't summarize your case in two sentences, then you don't know your case well enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that's a, a variety of what you're talking about here. I feel like, what does this material mean to me? It's only through this progressive summarization and actually the fact of at the end going through and putting it in your own words mm-hmm. that you actually, that is the five to one yard line run that you need yes. to do. Yes. And, and honestly, I, the thing that shocks me, because I've talked to people about this and I've been doing forums of this my entire career, that is not that much work. I don't understand why people you know, don't do the last five yards because it's like, it really is where you get the seven points, you know? So just do it. Yeah. I think we're not taught. We're not taught, you know, there's no in school. If you're taught any of this, it's just for that near term deadline. The idea of building up a lifelong knowledge asset is, I mean, this is why I've had to build my whole career, you know, popularizing this concept. (laughs) Yeah. I agree. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by Setup, curated playlists to help you get things done. Just search and follow Setup, S-E-T-A-P-P, on Spotify. Getting things done is a challenge that everyone struggles with. Listening to music is a long-used productivity hack among creatives. The problem is there is almost too much choice. How do you find the right one? Setup is a subscription-based productivity service for the Mac and iPhone users. I'm a fan. I'm a subscriber. And they're launching a curated productivity playlist on Spotify to help you stay focused and get more done. Whether you're having a daily stand-up or need to dive into work, there's a playlist for you. Just like Setup curates and recommends the right apps for you to solve any task, Setup playlists are carefully selected to fit various work situations. New playlists are added regularly to meet your needs, and Setup Platform has over 200 independent developers on board. So you can get motivated by listening to the music they are playing while working on their popular solutions. Enjoy the productive writing set by Ulysses, the deep focus playlist by Lo-Fi Garden, or the flash recharge break set from Clean My Mac. Search and follow Setup on Spotify and stay productive. That's S-E-T-A-P-P. Our thanks to Setup for their support of the Focus Podcast and all of Relay FM. I know you don't have a lot of time for us today. One other thing in your book that really just like knocked me right between the eyes is this idea of 12 interesting problems. Mm-hmm. It's a Feynman uh, issue. Um, but you did, you had a thing in, in the book about this idea of carrying around 12 of your favorite problems. Mm-hmm. And Feynman had used that. And it was like a background routine running all the time. Mm-hmm. And then he would see information as he's going through his code. And he would all of a sudden see a way to get enlightenment for that. Um, the book is full of little stories like that with things that may land with you if you're listening to this and I recommend it. But man, I just wanted to thank you for sharing that story. I, I've read a lot of 
productivity stuff over the years. I've never come across that story. Mm-hmm. I immediately opened a note that said my 12 favorite problems. I only have three so far, but I'm going to be filling that out over the next month. And I can't wait to you know, add that one to my bag of tricks. Can we hear them? Are you willing to, to share? <laughs> well, um, one of them is, um, so I'm at a point in my life where my children are transitioning to adulthood. And that one of them is how do I manage my relationship with them now that they're adults? Because that's, mm-hmm. that's a different thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is um, I have, you know, I'm as Max Barkey, my goal is there's a different element of the technology problem. And that is that um, technology steals people's attention and technology can help you recover it. And I feel like that is, my my main purpose and it's like how do i get that across so that's another big problem i've got the third one is kind of personal i don't really want to share it but the um but i it's fun doing that and i don't know that all 12 of them are going to be as monumental as the two i've shared Mm -hmm. but um uh, what a great trick man i Mm -hmm. i love that have you noticed i'm curious just having written those down have you started to notice little insights and ideas related to them yeah, I'm a week into it, and it's like I, I use a linked uh, system, so now I'm finding links back to this mm-hmm. with all sorts of stuff I've seen, um, and it, it is just a great idea. And not only do I like the idea of identifying problems that you're working on, but you know, problems have a negative connotation to them normally, right? It's a problem, you know, that's a bad thing. But Feynman calls it his favorite problems, mm-hmm. and so he puts this positive spin to a problem. A, a curiosity to be solved, a, a, a challenge to be overcome. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. I just like the whole um, approach to that. And uh, so I'm looking forward to finishing it. But yeah, um, there was a lot of stuff like this in the book, but that is one that really resonated with me. So happy. That's that's really makes me so, so, um, it's so gratifying. That's That's what it's about. Just these little tweaks, these little tricks to tune and tweak how your your first brain works actually yeah yeah i have a very meta version of one of those questions because <laughs> uh, my oldest uh, i have five kids and my oldest is 14 and getting to the age where he needs a cell phone and he's going to be using all this technology and i understand the dangers of social media and just how the system is kind of rigged against you in terms of your attention and intention. Mm -hmm. So um, I didn't realize that I've been doing this already, but when you got to that section of the book, I realized this is one of my questions is how do I teach my kids to -hmm. interact with technology so that they create and not consume? Yes. I've done some things already, but that's, and I like the term favorite problem, like David was saying, because I actually enjoy thinking about this. It's not like I'm going into it worried, like, oh, we need to avoid this negative outcome. Yeah. Just the fact that there is now attention being shown on this dragon lurking in the darkness, that's a positive thing. And now we can avoid it and we can turn the tables and we can use it for good. Yeah, it's the dragons you don't know about that are the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. There's, there is a healthy relationship to technology that is possible, I believe. Yeah. It just takes some intention and strategy and will on our on our end. We can't just be we can't just react. We can't just wait around to see what are the tech companies gonna, you know, lay on us this year. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I mean, they they have an interest that is contrary to your own, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. And uh, but 
but there, there is a way to do this, you know, and, uh, and move forward. And your book is, I think a, a step in that direction. I mean, the whole idea of managing the overwhelm and getting things out of this, this, this fire hose that can help you make your life better and help you help other people. I mean, that's, I mean, that's why we're all here today, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much more we could, we could talk about so many more great ideas in the book, uh, but we want to respect your time. So thank you so much, Tiago, for coming on the, the show today. If people want to find out more, where can they go? You can find out everything at buildingasecondbrain.com. Uh, it's all there. Yeah, it was great uh, talking to you guys. Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. You can tell we are of like minds. We're in the same, you know, the same niche. Uh, and I, I just hope, sounds like you guys have gotten some, something out of it. And I hope your listeners do as well. All right. Thanks again, Tiago, for coming on the show. Everybody check out the book, uh, Building a Second Brain. You can get it anywhere you can get books now. And uh, I think you will uh, enjoy the book a great deal. If you listen to our show, you're going to, this is, this is going to be great for you. So go check it out.